quite a bit of ministry last night, and um, I, just before Jack comes to speak, I was just interested. Uh, did anyone who received prayer get measurable healing last night? Anyone in the room? One. Anyone else? Two. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. Anyone else? Did I miss anyone? All right, cool. Well, that was great. I know we prayed for a lot of people, and typically what happens is we pray for people, and then we just, we just lose track. And then like four months later, I find out, oh, yeah, I was like permanently forever healed on that night, and I never told you, Pastor. Thanks. Uh, great. Um, hey, guys, we've, we've got a real treat for you this morning. If you haven't been here for the weekend uh, for the conference, uh, we have Jack Deere with us. He's from Fort Worth, Texas. And I said this on uh, Friday night, but Jack has been an invisible spiritual father to me, and not just me, but lots of people here at the church. His books have made an impact on us, uh, and if you've been here for any of the ministry, you know why. So um, we're going to have Jack come on up, but while he's coming up, I want you guys to just give Jack a round, okay? Come on. Give it up. On here. Okay, great. Hey, good morning. It's great, great to be with you this morning. Um, I want to have us turn in the Word, which is alive and powerful, But before we do that, let's pray and ask the author of the word for a little help this morning. Father, thank you for this great, great word. Thank you that it restores our soul, that it rejoices our heart, that it gives light to our eyes and makes us wise. Would you come among us this morning? Would you be our teacher? Would you let your word do all of those things for us this morning? Would you come in healing and revealing power? And would you come in a way, Lord, where we feel your affection for us, how much you like us, just like we are now, without one more change in our life? And would you grant to us grace to have a deeper friendship with the Son of God? For we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to talk with you a little bit this morning about uh, friendship with Jesus and uh, a little bit about where I am in my uh, journey with him. And uh, I didn't come out of a Christian home. Was, uh, we never went to church. We believed in God. We just never talked to him. Never had much use for him in our, uh, in our home. And when I was 17, uh, on December 18th, 1965, I heard for the first time in my life that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, and that if I would trust him to forgive me and give me a new life, he would come into my heart. And then I heard this, and he will never leave again. And that was the part, I, it was just too good to be true. Uh, I knew by 17, I was as, as wild as I could be, and that was my identity, was uh, just figuring out new ways to surpass the last wild thing I did. And now, we didn't take drugs in 1965 in, in Texas, at least not the kids who thought they were cool. That was the maybe just on the fringes uh, of our culture. A few kids were, were doing that. But we got drunk and fought and stole things from vandals and, all, and, and the sexual stuff and all that. Uh, but drugs had not yet made their way from California into our culture. It would be a couple more years, and my brothers would be uh, caught up in that culture, um, my younger brothers. But I was the oldest of uh, four kids, lost my father when I was 12, went wild uh, after that, and that was my identity. And uh, I knew that I could not be good. And so why start a reformation? Why turn over the new leaf or try to be good when you know you're going to fail anyway? You, you might last a week, you might last a month. So why do that? And you just get all that time you could have been having fun wasted. And um, so I kind of had a plan in the back of my mind. And I thought, okay, one day I'll really make a serious run at being good. But I'll do it when I'm 30 years old and uh, I'm married and, I've, and, and there's, there's no more fun in life anyway. So then, then I'll go ahead and take a run at it. And, and, and how many of you know that your timetable never works out? See, I, I didn't know this at 17. But uh, if I had not, if the Lord had not rescued me and reined me in, I would have never made it to 21. I was just 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And, and besides, that was my identity, was uh, just keep surpassing the last, uh, the, the last act. So at 17, I hear J- Jesus died on the cross for me, that if I trust him to forgive me and give me his version of life, just trade it in for the one I've been living, trust him for the power to live a new life and have a new life, 
that he'll come into my heart and he'll never, ever leave. And that was the part that got me, that he would never, ever leave. And I said to my friend, Bruce, I, I, I said, uh, this is 2 o'clock in the morning, December 18th, 1965. I go, yeah, but Bruce, what happens when I fall down and, and sin and just and do bad stuff again? And, and what happens if I do that? And he goes, if. He goes, count on it. You are going to do that. But he's not coming into your life because you're, you're making a promise to be good. He's coming into your life because you're trusting him to forgive you and give you a new life. And in this new life, what he'll do when you stumble and fall is he'll pick you up and he'll help you. And, and he'll love you and he'll never leave you no matter the quality of your life. And I go, that can't be true. He goes, absolutely, it's true. I go, how do you know that? And he says, because that's what he said and he never lies. So he quoted that passage out of... John 10, I've come that they might have abundant life. I hold them in my hand, and no one can take them out of my hand. I give them eternal life, and no one can take them out of my hand. And then passages like, uh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. It's one of my all-time favorite verses. I love that. I will never leave you nor forsake you if you live a certain quality of life. doesn't say that. It's just an absolute blanket promise that once he comes into your life, you are born again, and there is no mechanism in the Bible for being unborn. You are, now I didn't know all this at the time, but that word, he will never leave you, forsake you, is forming in my heart. But then I, when I start studying the Bible, I find out you are justified when you believe in him. You are declared righteous, and you, there is no mechanism for being unjustified. John five twenty four. he gives you eternal life. You, you don't wait to get it in heaven. You get it in this life. Now think about that. He gives you eternal life. Well, if you lose it, it wasn't really eternal, was it? By definition, eternal life never stops. It just goes on and on and on. So you got all of these arguments and all of these things. But I didn't need all those arguments that night. I just, that one word, uh, you'll never, he'll never leave you, settled on my heart. And uh, I trusted him that night to forgive me and give me a new life. And then for the next number of years, I worked real hard to show him I was worthy of that life. And I studied real hard. And that perfectionism I was raised in, um, I just put to use now for God. And uh, witnessed really hard and zealous. And, and uh, it's only been in the last few years that, uh, that, that I found out that he actually wants a friendship with me. And I want to show you some of the passages that have uh, kind of transformed the way um, I feel about God, the way... I feel he feels about me. And the first one is in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. It's the calling of the apostles in Mark. Each, each of the Gospels has a little bit of different story or emphasis in the way they were called. This is Mark. Hey, what, what time do we normally end church here? This guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm capable of speaking at a sustained level of generality. I mean, so I don't want to mess up anybody's lunch. Okay, so um, anyway, if you get hungry, just wave your, wave your hand and say, Jack, I think it's lunchtime, and I'll stop. I'm kidding. I, I promise not to abuse you that way. Um, okay, this is uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and we know from Luke chapter 6 that he spent the whole night in prayer. Because he's hearing in his ear from his father the names of the twelve apostles who are supposed to be with him. And he called to them those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. Now, if we just close the Bible, and I say, what did we just read? What did Jesus do? Almost all of us in the room, this is what I did for years and years, I would say, well, it's obvious. He called them to preach the gospel, go all over the world, tell people about Jesus. He called them to drive out demons, and because I'd read the other gospel accounts, I'd probably say, oh, and he called them to heal too, right? That's what we just read. But it's not what we just read. It skips over the most important thing. And most of my life, I skipped over the most important thing in this call. It just went over me, just, just right past me. It's the first three words in the call. It says that they might, what? Be with him. 
And you trace those words through, and they keep occurring through the Bible. They had been with him. Be with him. You see that over and over. Here's the most amazing thing I know about God. He wants to be with you and me just like we are right now. He can enjoy us just like we are right now. He actually wants to be friends with us. It's true he's our Lord. It's true he's our Savior. It's true we're also his bridegroom. And, and uh, there, there are wonderful movements that emphasize the fact that we're his bridegroom. And, uh, I mean, we're his bride and he's the bridegroom. They're, they're, it's true. They're wonderful movements to do. I think that's great. Uh, and there are movements that emphasize the lordship of Jesus. He really is our uh, Lord. Um, but the one that resonates with me is he actually wants to be my friend. On the last night, he looked at his apostles, uh, and they had just left the upper room. They're on the way to the Mount of Olives. And in John fifteen fifteen, he says, I no longer call you servants. To be sure, they, we are his servants, and he is our boss. He is our Lord. But he says, that's not the way I think of you now. I no longer call you servants. I call you what? Friends. Now, think about the essence of friendship. If you have had a best friend, and, here, and here's the tragedy, uh, especially for us guys, is we do have best friends growing up, right? You think about your best friend in high school, and then if you went to college maybe, uh, you, you think about your best friend there. And then we get married and we settle down to making a living and all that. And we guys don't have best friends anymore. We may have some drinking buddies or golf buddies or hunting buddies, but we don't have best friends anymore like we did. Uh, And it's real common in Christian circles for uh, guys to go, I was talking to a guy the other day, I go, who's your best friend? And he goes, my wife's my best friend. (laughs) And I go, you joker, your wife's your only friend. Uh, You don't have a best friend. You don't have a friend. Uh, and, and, and so we started talking, and sure enough, that was exactly right. So I don't buy that line. My wife's my best friend. My husband's my best friend. Uh, your spouse is more than your best friend. But your spouse, let's uh, take guys for a minute, your, your wife will never be able to affirm you in your masculinity. She, she, has, she doesn't know what it's like to be a man. Why God gave us fathers, and he gave us best friends one of the reasons and if you think if you've had a best friend and the same is true of uh of of women husbands can never affirm their wife and their femininity that's done by mothers and best friends who are women all of us need one or two best friends of the same sex what do you mean i mean people who know every single dark secret in our life and they love us anyway and they want to be with us So here's the rule we use in our church. If you can't talk about it, it owns you. That is true. That that is true. I verify that over and over and over. That abuse in the past that's been hidden, you know, you had to go through something to survive it. Okay? And you had to go through some sort of denial, some through some childhood defense, uh, you just you picked whatever it was, and you had to survive it. And so you survive it. You get out of the home, and, and you think, okay, well, that's in my past. And that's what I thought about my past. Uh, that's in my past. But what I carried from the traumatic childhood I, I had and didn't talk about was the anger and rage. And it just started, it, sometimes it would just explode on someone, and I had no idea why I was doing it. And uh, here's what I found out about that. When I can tell my darkest, worst secrets, the things that disqualify me, that would not allow me to set up the table with anyone else. You know, if you only knew, you wouldn't want me in here. Those kind of secrets, when I tell them to the right person, 50% of the power of that darkness is broken just like that. Um, I've got tons of stories of that. I've got personal experience uh, my, from my wife as well from my family, from friends, the guys I go to church with. We tell our stories now, and, and our goal is for all of us to have one or two best friends that know all of our secrets. What happens is um, that not only do you get protection, and, and we're not talking about accountability. People who stress accountability are people who don't know how to relate. 
Accountability. I'm, tr- I'm serious. I, I want to be accountable to you. Uh, go find somebody else, brother. Uh, I, I'm not looking for more people to be accountable to. I'm looking for the joy of friendships. And, and when I enjoy you, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to tell you things I wouldn't tell other people. I, I, don't, I don't believe we're supposed to tell everything to every, everybody, but I believe one or two people are supposed to know everything. When you find that person, there is what, what brings us together in friendship? It's not to help one another, although best friends will, are 24-7 helpers. It's the joy we feel when we're with that person. We have a chemistry with that person, and, uh, and we feel affection, we feel love, we feel significance. That's one of the ways we feel God's love coming to us is through deep friendships with people who know him and know us and like us anyway. Okay, all of us are supposed to have best friends. That's what Jesus did. Jesus picked out 12 guys who are really special. And out of those three, I mean, out of those 12, three were really special, James, Peter, and John. And out of those, there was John. And when John writes the gospel of John, the way he describes himself is the one whom Jesus loves. Some of the translations say he was the best friend of Jesus. And when you read the Gospels, you really see that. He really was the best friend of Jesus. So, it's the uh, Last Supper. Jesus drops the bombshell on the guys. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all start going, who in the world? Who, who? And it just it disrupts the whole dinner. But nobody will ask him who it is. Right? Not even Peter. And Peter will pretty much say anything at any time. Uh, and, and Peter... <laughs> Peter is the, uh, the leader of the disciples. I mean, that's clear. He is the leader. And uh, he's bold. He speaks out. Uh, but not this night. So Peter turns to John, and he goes, uh, John, you, you ask him who it is. Because Peter knows what everybody else around that table knew, that John could get something out of the Lord that no one else could. And that he wasn't afraid to do it. So John goes, okay. Now, where's John sitting at the Last Supper? Right next to Jesus. So he just turns, leans over on Jesus, and he goes, uh, uh, Lord, who, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus looks down and says, Well, John, it's the one I give this piece of bread to. So he dips the bread and hands it over to Judas. Go do what you must do quickly. John straightens back up and he goes, uh, Peter, it's uh, Judas. He's, he's the one. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Next day, the, 11, the other 11 are gone. Judas has gone off and hanged himself, and the other 10 have run from their life. Even Peter, who said that he would die with Jesus, he's gone. His faith failed him on that day. The one didn't leave, and that's John. He's standing there at the foot of the cross, and the three women with him, and one of them is the mother of Jesus. And the last thing Jesus says uh, to any human before he slips into the darkness, bearing the sin of the whole world from noon to three, and the darkness falls over him. last thing he says to any human, the next four words are going to be called out to God or just expressing his agony. Here's the last thing he says. He's looking down at his mother, and uh, he's thinking, well, not my brothers. They don't even believe in me. Not the apostles, they're all gone. Like John, you're the only one I got. So he looks at his mother, most precious person on earth to him, and he says, Woman, behold your son. Then he looks at John and says, Behold your mother. And from that hour, John took her into his home, and she was his mother too. Best thing Jesus had. He gave to his best friend. The good news is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ is so big, it can accommodate a lot more best friends. And the really good news is, is that's actually what he wants from us. And all the time, I thought it was my performance. I, I thought he wanted me to work harder. And, and so I was working harder to prove that I was worthy. I was working harder to... I was already accepted. I just didn't feel it that much. And so I was working harder to show... Uh, you know, that I'm really worth something. I kept thinking I'm going to overcome my failures. And, and, uh, and so I want to really have a great ministry uh, uh, to give to him. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to give a great ministry to him. 
but sort of the way I was doing it was like one of those greyhounds that's running around the track, you know. The greyhounds are all chasing that mechanical rabbit, you know, running like the devil to get that mechanical rabbit. And one greyhound does win the race. And then they start up and they have another race. And one greyhound, greyhound wins that race. But nobody ever catches the rabbit. See, that's what shame will do to you. Shame that says, uh, guilt is the feeling I get when I make a mistake, the pain I, I, I feel when I make a mistake. Shame is the feeling that I have when I think I'm the mistake. And I never knew how much shame I grew up with. I grew up in a shaming home, and I carried that, and I never realized how much shame was motivating me to excellence in the Christian life, to scripture memory and study. It wasn't like I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed it, but I never realized how much part of that was driving me and why it was so hard to relax and why anger is just spilling out uh, at the most the wrong moments. It was because I was working to earn something I already had. And, and no matter how hard I worked, I couldn't feel better about the shame. And the reason is real simple. No amount of doing is going to change a problem of being. Shame is a problem of being. And the answer to it is feeling the affection of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like we are now. And the only way to feel his affection is to be with him. When I was in the first grade. Uh, there was this uh, cute, dark-haired, dark-complexioned, like a girl looked like an Indian princess. Her name was Cheryl. And she sat across the room from me. And I sort of daydreamed about Cheryl. <laughs> and one day, one of Cheryl's friends sent me a note that said, uh, Cheryl really likes you. And I went, all right. And I started planning what I was going to do. Maybe I'll walk home from school with her today. And, uh, and then I started thinking, you know how cruel kids are. Uh, we know how cruel adults are, too. But uh, it's <laughs> especially unsophisticated in their cruelty when they're little. <laughs> and uh, I started thinking, um, what if Cheryl doesn't like me at all and her friend just wrote that note to uh, trick me? And so I go try to walk her home. She goes, ew, I wouldn't walk home with you. You've got cooties, you know, or something like that. You know, and then I'd just be crestfallen. And so I kind of puzzled over, does Cheryl really like me or not? What's the only way I could know Cheryl liked me? If she told me. Right? So, some well-meaning preacher or, or, or good friend can stand up here and say, Jesus really liked you just like you are right now, without one more change in your life. But see, all of our life, we've been told, like we are right now, we're not acceptable. We need to change. We need to gain weight. We need to lose weight. We need to get smarter. We need to get dumber. We need to work harder. We need to know more. We need to change this moral thing. We need to get out of this addiction. Like we are right now, we're not changed. So we just get on that track and we run, chasing that rabbit we're never going to catch. And so it doesn't matter too much when, when one human voice goes, hey, he likes you just like you are now. He really loves you because all the other voices drowned that out. Voices that started in, in childhood, they just drowned it out. The only way to really believe that is to hear him say it himself. And he has all kinds of creative ways of saying it, but you've got to be with him for him to say that. Okay? Now, I'll give you one, uh, uh, one little story and then one more passage. And um, when I was about 40 years old, I had moved to Anaheim, California, and I was with John Wimber in the vineyard. That was the mothership of the vineyard. And, um, and I was going through a revival in my life. And, and, and it was like the, uh, I went from not believing in miracles to believing in them, and all of a sudden it was like I got, this, I got a whole new book. I mean, it was, it was like this stuff could really happen today. Now, I always defended it that it did happen, but I, I taught that it doesn't happen anymore. And it wasn't happening for me, so, uh, and I had reasons and all that. But now I believe in that stuff, and I'm actually seeing miracles. And so when I'm reading this Bible, this is great, you know? Uh, and it also created some problems. Because, uh, you, you know, Jesus, in Mark 7, he spits on a man's tongue to, before he prays for him. He, and, and the guy can speak, and then the ears open up. So now, I'm, and now I'm, all of a sudden, that's a big problem. It used to never be a problem because we weren't praying for people that couldn't speak. But now I'm praying for people that couldn't speak, and I go, do we use the saliva method tonight? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But it was still exciting trying to puzzle those things out and, 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 and figure them out. You know, you wet fingers, stick them in the ears, maybe it works. You know, you put mud on the guy's eyes, maybe that's why he didn't see this time. So it's like I got this whole, I got this book now that's come alive for me, and I'm super excited, and I'm actually seeing miracles, and I'm hearing God's voice in a, in a way that's absolutely wonderful. And so one day, I'm, uh, I'm driving to work, and I'm in the church van, crummy old van, and I'm singing at the top of my voice, and I'm just 
I, I realized about halfway to work, dang, son, you are happy. And uh, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going, it's like I start talking to my soul. Why are you so happy? And I'm trying to, to figure it out because whatever, whatever it is, I'd like to keep this going. I, I go, you're not your normal, morose, sullen, bitter self. I mean, this is great. How do, how do you keep this going? So I start thinking, uh, well, wait, you're, you're, you're reading the Bible with more joy than you've ever had before and reading it more, not even for speaking or anything like that, just because you're loving it. You're praying more than you've ever prayed. I never was a big prayer. I was always a big studier. But I would slip, I would slip off. I would tell my secretary, we had this big warehouse where we housed the church back in those days. And I would slip off to some dark corner of the warehouse, and I would just say to my secretary, none of us had cell phones back then. It's like 1988, 99, uh, 89, 88, 89. And so I'd say, I'm going to be gone. Don't try to find me. And, and I'll check back in, just take messages. And so I would go off and, for however long, and I would sit in a corner someplace, and I would pray and pour out my heart to God and, and, and tell him he was a pretty great person. And, and it was just it was wonderful. So I go, you're praying more than you've ever prayed before. You're, you're reading the Bible in a way you've never read the Bible before. And, uh, and then you're, you're fasting. I'd never fasted in my life. I'll tell you one of the great advantages of having a theological category that says things passed away, you know. It's like whatever you don't like, you just throw them in that waste paper basket of things passed away. Well, you don't like the gifts of the Spirit. You don't like shubash, robo, lobo, so you just stick it in there, you know. Tongues, who do that? So you just put all the stuff in the basket. And fasting, I absolutely hated. Every once in a while, one of my friends would say, uh, I forgot to eat lunch today. And it just didn't compute in my mind. How could you? How could any normal person forget to eat lunch? I might miss lunch, but I guarantee you it wasn't because I forgot. I was totally aware of it and had plans to make it up that evening, you know, big time. So I absolutely hated fasting. Um, but Wimber told me to do it. So for the first time in my life, I, I pulled fasting out of the waste paper basket, and I started doing it. So I'm going, yeah, okay, you're, and you're fasting. And oh, and, oh, by the way, I know you can lose your reward if you talk about fasting, Okay. So, and I don't want to lose my word for those fasts back in those days. And, and uh, so I don't want to give you the impression, you, you know, but uh, I wouldn't like some huge deal. Um, but but I, I was basically missing my mid-morning snack. Uh, oh, I was doing it consistently every Tuesday. I would just, I just pass that donut up. Um, so I'm riding in this car. I'm happy. I'm singing. And I'm saying, why are you happy? And all of a sudden, my hand is going back like this, just patting myself on the back and going, well, here's why you're happy. You are more committed than you've ever been before. Of course, that's why you're happy. You're reading the Bible more. You're praying more. You're fasting more. And I'm just going, wow. And, and finding other things about my commitment that is just so pleasing. And you, you are you're on the path, boy. And uh, about that time, I hear heaven speak. It wasn't audible, but it was internally audible, complete Three complete sentences formed in my brain, and they came like out of nowhere and just stopped me almost on a freeway. And it said this, while I'm doing this, you are so committed. The voice said this, don't rejoice in your commitment to the Lord Jesus. Second sentence, rejoice in the Lord Jesus. Third sentence. If you rejoice in your commitment to the Lord Jesus, it will lead you into self-righteousness. Repeat those three sentences. Don't rejoice in your commitment to the Lord Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus. If you rejoice in your commitment to Jesus, it will lead you into self-righteousness. When that voice went off, it was like all of a sudden I looked at my whole life from that night I became, at 17 when Jesus first came into my heart to right where I was here, and I saw these mountains and then these deserts. And I saw myself climbing up a mountain. And, and the truth was, uh, when I became a Christian, I, I was really serious about the Lord. So I memorized scripture. And not that many kids my age were memorizing scripture. I'm climbing up the mountain, and I'm going, wow, you're climbing up the mountain. This is pretty great. And when I focused on how it was pretty great, I was climbing up the mountain. The next scene, I was out in a wilderness. And it was dry, and it wasn't fun. And what I was doing, climbing up that mountain, uh, thinking I was getting closer to God, was just rejoicing in my commitment. And that rejoicing in my commitment got me off the mountain and down in a wilderness. And the last wilderness had lasted for about eight years. 
all the while teaching at seminary, but basically not being what you would call a happy person. person gaining some more knowledge, but not necessarily one of those people rejoicing in the Lord. And it was like the Lord just stepped in and said, Jack, this is the pattern of your life. This is how you leave me. You don't leave me as the prodigal son anymore. You leave me as the elder brother. The one who feels superior to other people. Because this is the way you leave me. And really, those are really the only two ways we leave God, isn't it? The prodigal who just says, I can't do this anymore, and opts out for the quick pleasure. Or the elder brother who just keeps chasing the rabbit and feeling superior to the people who aren't chasing the rabbit. And it's like he just interrupted and said, I don't want you doing this again. I'm warning you. And I just said, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I kept thinking about that all the way to work. And by the time I got to work, I go, Lord, this is so great. This has got to be somewhere in your word. Where is this in the Bible? I didn't hear a word. It was about three days later. I was just traveling along someplace, and I heard where it was in the Bible. Want, want to turn? I'll show you. It's Luke 18. Luke 18. Verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. That one sentence pretty much summarized a lot of my adult pursuit of God. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Did I mention I've always been a tither? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When you read John, you don't see John rejoicing in his commitment. You see him enjoying a best friend. Now, I want to show you where this is. We'll close with this. I want to show you where the the story is with the women. This is in um, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, the famous uh, Mary Martha story. key to life is friendship with the Son of God. And this will just help us a little bit more understand what that looks like. Um, you probably heard the Mary Martha story, sometimes told like this. Um, Mary and Martha represent two types of believers. Martha's the worker-oriented saint, you know, and Mary is the contemplative, meditative type. And we need both types in the body of Christ. That's the wrong way to look at this story. Because according to the story, Jesus is saying we don't need any more Martha types. And the problem's not at all with work. The problem's with something far worse. I mean, work is good. Serving God is good. Doing things for God is good. What Martha is doing in this story is not serving God. And it's not good. And we don't need any more of this in the body. But we got a whole lot of it in the body of Christ right now. So, let's, let's uh, look at the story. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She's generous. She's hospitable. Jesus just drops in with 12 of his friends at dinner time. No problem for Martha. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now, the Lord comes. Martha could have served him sandwiches. Martha's going, nope, not for the Lord. It's the Lord. So she gets back in the kitchen. All the preparations that had to be made, this is in her mind they had to be made. Jesus doesn't ask for an eight-course meal, but Martha goes, I'm giving him one, and it's going to be awesome. Okay. And the key to the understanding of this passage is in that word, distracted. Distracted from what? This is actually the, uh, the word, distracted in... Uh, 
in, uh, in the 1500s actually meant crazy, pulled away from reality. So what's Martha pulled away from? What's she distracted from? The Son of God. Yeah. Son of God is sitting in her living room. The answer to every problem she's ever had, will have, has right now, is sitting on her couch. And she's distracted from him. Okay? Here's what she does. She was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Did you know we can be distracted from God by our ministry to God? That's what's happening here. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, did you know you can ask a question not for the sake of obtaining information? Like my brothers when we were little, they used to say, Jackie, why are you so stupid? Well, they weren't waiting for a genetic explanation or habits or anything like that. They they were expressing their exasperation over my uh, stupidity. So when Martha looks at the Lord and says, don't you care? What she's really saying is, you don't care that I'm slaving for you in here and this sister's doing nothing. My work doesn't mean anything to you. She's angry at him and she's angry at her sister. And then she looks up into those eyes that determine whether she gets to take the next breath or not. And she says, you tell her to get in there now. Okay, well, you might think that ticks off Jesus, but it doesn't. And the way I know it doesn't tick off Jesus is because he says her name twice, Martha, Martha. Whenever Jesus says your name twice, it means he has a great deal of affection in his heart for you. Like Peter, Peter, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It also means he's going to give you a very serious rebuke, so listen up. Okay? <laughs> That's like, you know, Martha's crazy right now, looking up at God and commanding God. It's about one of the craziest things you can do. Okay? So he's going to bring her back to reality. And now he's going he's to explain to her what's just happened to her. And this is really important. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried. Well, what's worry? Worry is the fear that's what, that what's really important to us is not going to happen. Meal's not going to be on time. It's not going to be enough food. It's not going to be hot enough. It's not going to be good enough. My son's not going to come back to the Lord. My daughter's going to do this. My husband's, you know, I'm never going to be happy again. It's it's the fear that what's most important to us is just not going to happen. So that's the first thing he says. Martha, you're worried. And if worry goes unchecked, here's what it leads to. And you're upset about many things. goes beyond the meal now. It just leads to this orientation toward life and anger's off the charts. He says, but only one thing is needed. There's only one thing that was necessary. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is Martha fixing that meal for? You say Jesus. That's the, that's the yeah. But the truth is, no. That, she told herself it was for Jesus. The truth is, She's fixing that meal for herself. She wants to feel good about herself, and she wants to do it through her ministry. And, folks, that is a loser in life. To try to get our significance, our self-worth from our ministry guarantees a defiled ministry, and it guarantees we're on that track chasing that rabbit that we're never going to catch. We were never, ever meant to get our significance from our performance. That is not why God called us. I mean, yes, we do have a ministry for him. That's really, and it is important, but it's not nearly so important as being with him. First thing he wanted was a friend. And which would you rather have? Had you rather have a best friend to share your heart or a servant to wait on you? Which one's going to give you more joy? And, and if you're not distracted, you know the answer to that. It's the friend, and that's what he wants. All right? So she's not doing this for herself. She actually wants to impress the Lord. And it's pretty hard to impress uh, an omniscient, 
omnipotent, omnipresent, perfect being. Now, it's not hard to get his esteem, but it's pretty hard to, uh, to impress him. And we get his esteem by being friends with him, not by working harder than somebody else. And the ministry is important, quality of our service, that's important. But it has to come from a place of friendship, not a place of trying to impress or feel better about ourselves. Because if we're doing it that way, we're just doing it for ourselves. And it's never going to work. So he says, only one thing was needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So what is it that Mary chose? And what is it that she's never going to lose? Now, to, to be free, to, to be fair to Martha, Mary was violating the etiquette of those days. Because okay? Mary actually was not supposed to be in that room with those men. She really was supposed to be in the kitchen. And here's the way a dinner went in first century ancient Near East. The dinner went like this. All the men came into the room because they have important men stuff to talk about. And the women go to the kitchen and they fix the men food. And then they come out long enough to serve the food and then they leave and go back to the kitchen. And they don't come back in that room until the men are through and then they come in to clean the dishes away and then the men leave and they go about their important business and then the women and the kids uh, get to eat after that. Some of you guys are going, hey, what happened to those good old days? How do we, how do we, how do we lose that? Uh, I don't know how, but just, we're going we're to have to deal with it because I don't think they're coming back, guys. I don't think those days are coming back. But they sure know how to eat in the first century. I'll say that much for them. Okay, so here's Mary. She's doing the wrong thing. She's sitting in the, uh, she's sitting in the living room with the guys. And, but she's got a whole different psychology about this than Martha. It's not like she doesn't, not like she wouldn't wait on Jesus. I mean, if he said, uh, Martha, I'd like a cup of coffee, or Martha, I'd like a sandwich, I mean, she'd be out there in a nanosecond getting it. But he's not telling her that. And she, she's thinking like this. She's going, Martha, why are you so angry? Martha, what in the world are you doing in the kitchen? He's in here. And he may never be in here again. And the truth was, that was the last visit. She's thinking, how could you do this? How could you do this? And she knows she's not supposed to be in the room. And, and, the, and all the apostles know that she's not supposed to be in the room. And you can see the tension. I mean, you can just feel the tension in the room. And, uh, you know, if she were sitting by Peter, Peter might have just leaned down and said, uh, Mary, wouldn't you be more comfortable in the other room there helping Martha? But she's not sitting by Peter. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Peter knows better by now. You know, he's done it. He's put his foot in his mouth one time too often. And he's going, she doesn't belong in here. John's going, sure, that's right. She doesn't belong in here. They all know she doesn't belong in here. But he's not saying anything. I don't understand this. We'll let her stay. So that's where the apostles are. You see, Mary, she knows she doesn't belong in there. And she knows the guys are uncomfortable, but she doesn't care. She's looking up at his face, and she doesn't say a word the whole story. And she, in fact, she doesn't do a thing the whole story except listen. You can just see her eyes looking up at Jesus going, it means so much to me, Lord, you would let me be in here. And you can see him looking down at her. He's talking to the guys, but he's looking at her, and you can see his eyes going, it means so much to me that you want to be here. So what was she really doing? She wasn't using her gifts. She wasn't praying. She wasn't reading the Bible. You know, she wasn't serving. What was she really doing? What was that one thing that God wanted more than anything else that she was doing? She was listening, but if you think, well, why do you listen? Why do kids listen to music today? Why do you have? Why do you see iPods everywhere you go and things in people's ears? They're, they're listening to what they enjoy, what makes them feel better. But there she is. She's doing the one thing that he really wants. She's enjoying him. And he says, I'll never interrupt this. I'll never take this away from her. The highest compliment you can pay anybody is to want to be with them, to actually enjoy them. You know, we've all had appointments with people, and we know the person's just given us the appointment because they have to, and they can't wait for us to get out of there. But he goes, I'll never leave the room first. If you want to be here with me, I want to be with you. 
He's just enjoying him. That's the essence of friendship. For every thousand people that will serve God, you might find one person that knows how to enjoy him and how to grow a friendship, how to cultivate a friendship, and how to feel his affection. And Mary was one of those people, and John was one of those people. When uh, I was raised in Texas, and, you know, in, in Texas we all love to hunt and shoot guns, and fathers usually take sons out at an early age. I didn't have a father to do that. I didn't start until I was in my 20s. But I said, I'm going to take my sons uh, hunting. I'm going to take them to shoot. So we had a little ritual. When you're about four years old, you could go on your first quail hunt with Dad. So I took my first son on a quail hunt, Stephen Craig Deer, and Stephen Craig's like the perfect, obedient child. Scott, our second son, whom we lost when he was 22 to drugs, a psychotic break, and took his life in our own home 10 years ago at Christmas. He was a blonde-haired charmer that just ran through life and uh, could charm his way out of uh, anything. And uh, But he was the one we had to correct. And we had a daughter who was like the perfect child. So we had two perfect children uh, and then a son who wanted to be the prodigal from uh, er early on. Uh, But a charming, charming, charming prodigal. And so I took him on his first quail hunt. Okay, He's four years old, maybe four and a half, I don't remember. I didn't give him a gun, okay. Uh, But but this here's what this meant. This meant you go out with Dad while the sun's, uh, before the sun comes up, we go out to the friend's ranch. We've got the dog in the trailer. And the dog's going to find the birds, and I'm going to shoot the birds. And we're going to walk together, and we're going to hunt all morning, eat lunch, then hunt all afternoon. So get out of the truck, start on the hunt, and the dog goes on point, and Scott starts walking up in front of the dog, and I grab him by his little belt. Scott, when the dog's on point, do not walk in front of the dog. Uh, You you stay with me. Okay, then. Uh, We're hunting a little later, and I go, Scott, that's a hole. Don't put your hand down that hole. Some rattlesnakes live in those kind of holes. And pull them back like this. So, uh, okay, Dad. So all day long, I'm grabbing that little boy by the belt, pulling him back, and just, I'm correcting him the whole day. Uh, but we're having, we're having fun. So the end of the day comes, all right? Sun's down, and we've got the dog in the trailer. And th- this was, like, a long time ago when, when cars still had the bench seats in the front, you know, and you had three seat belts. So we get in the car. He puts a seatbelt on over by the door, and he takes it off. And he scoots over by me, and he puts the middle seatbelt on, and he lays his little blonde head over on my shoulder. And he goes, Dad, this was a great day. <laughs> and I go, it was a great day, Scott. And he goes, but I am so tired. And I go, me too. We've been walking all day. And, and he goes, and Dad, I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty, I could drink anything. And there was this little pause, and he says, Sip potty water. I wouldn't drink potty water. <laughs> My heart just exploded with affection for him. And I could just see that little, literal four-year-old mind. He goes, I could drink anything. And then his little mind starts to check out all the potential beverages. <laughs> and he gets to the dog drinking the potty water. And he goes, nah, I wouldn't do potty water. I'm not that thirsty. <laughs> and I just, I, I would, I thank God to this day for that memory. It was one of the happiest days in my life. And I spent a good part of that day correcting that son. See, we think because our obedience is so imperfect and because we have to be corrected so often that we can't really be enjoyed by God like we are right now. So we get on that track, and we start chasing that rabbit. And God just says, get off the track. Let's go hunting together. And I'll correct you, but it doesn't mean I can't enjoy you. I would love to have that little boy back today just to correct. And I'm just an earthly father. If I feel that way about my son, how much more does the one who died for us feel that way about us? Friendship with Jesus, enjoying the Son of God. It's possible right now, just like we are right now. Is it easy? No, it's the hardest thing I've ever found in life because I get distracted by everything. And I get so many wrong things in my heart. It is so hard to enjoy Jesus. But I'm doing it some now. Not near as much as I want, but I'm doing it some and maybe growing a little bit in it. 
Great. Lord, we ask for your healing mercy and also for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to come over our lives like you did for me in the car uh, that day. Would you let that kind of illumination start going off all over the room now so that we see the fundamental errors that we're making, the things that's keeping us from enjoying the Son of God and enjoying friendship with one another. And would you do a divine work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to just to cause us to cause us to desire that friendship with the Son of God more than anything else. We want to love the Son of God like you love him. We want to have that same holy fascination with the Son of God that you have. We need a work of the Holy Spirit to do that. Put it on our hearts now to wake up in the morning and the first thing we seek is to hear our friend, to talk to our friend, to begin that life of enjoying him. Squelch that voice that says, like you are now, this is not really possible for you. The voice of the accuser, Lord, causes us to recognize it and reject it. Put it on our hearts every day to ask for an increasing friendship with the Son of God, for an increasing capacity to feel your affection for us in the midst of all the correction, in the midst of all the imperfection, uh, and in the midst of the, the addictions uh, uh, that we have. And, and don't believe that lie that if you're in an, an addiction, Jesus doesn't have affection for you, that he can't enjoy you. Don't believe that lie. It's a lie. You, addiction is a trap. You fell into a trap. Big deal. And, and he has ways of getting you out of that trap, and there's timing and all that stuff. But don't wait till the addiction's over to think he can't enjoy you. He can enjoy any of us right now if we just want to crawl up in his lap. Make that the driving goal in our life. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Make that the driving goal in our life, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Why don't we stand up? going to do one thing right now. We're going to take a few minutes and we're just going to enjoy the Lord. Okay? So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to close your eyes. And it's going to get really quiet and somewhat awkward for some people in here. Because we're just, the Lord is abundantly present and we're just going to enjoy Him. Alright? There's actually no ministry this morning. It's the ministry of enjoying the Lord. Father, would you make us aware of your presence? And just go to the quiet, the most quiet and silent part of your heart until you can feel the affections of Jesus. Jesus.